morning. Good to see you all, and those of you who are online, welcome uh, to this morning's worship service. I'm glad I'm here. I've got my tissues ready. I've got my warm water ready. I've got everything ready. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, well, every uh, week we say um, something like this before we have you open your Bible. Uh, we say, oh, by the way, that retreat was so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. And, uh, and it is, uh, I went two years ago and did the story of God. I did it again uh, this time. And uh, I, this, the students are just, I, I just don't know how to say it, but they're just very, 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 very special group. And um, it's amazing when I'm, I'm teaching story of God and they've got their notebooks open and they're feverishly taking notes. And I say, I want you to reflect for a little bit on this. And everybody's there, you know, just reflecting uh, on what that is. And it's just, just an amazing, amazing weekend. The adults that help make it happen, amazing. Uh, Jared, who's a second-year college student, put together that video, and he's been doing those now for us for, for a while. Just, uh, just amazing. All right. So, um, where was I? Oh, yeah, every week. Before we tell you to open your Bible, we say... Something like this. We say understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery. When we started saying that, one of our members, longtime member, said, Henry, the Bible's filled with mysteries. Are you sure you want to say that? I said, well, saying that doesn't have to be a mystery, that you can understand the Bible, does not mean that you have no mystery in the Bible. Today's passage, and in fact this entire series, is filled with mystery. And it'll be one of my points in the sermon today. It's just absolutely filled with mystery. And so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, those of you who are here, those of you who are at home, go get one. And those of you who are here, uh, uh, it, you can grab one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and it's on page 1134, 1134, 1, Um Well, uh, we're in this new series. It's a three-week series. It's on Romans 9 through 11. Uh, I, I thought when I said three weeks that it would be quite a stretch to try to get it done in three weeks. Uh, I find that most pastors try to cover it in one week because it is so impossible to preach on these passages. <laughs> um, it really is. And, uh, and then some of my favorite pastors, I'm like, oh, I could get some help from Tim Keller. Let's see, let's see what he said on this. Never in all his years preached on Romans 9, 10, or 11. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And... Uh, it just, it just shows how dumb I am uh, to even try. Okay. So uh, we are uh, going to pray, and, uh, and then we'll jump in. Um, this prayer is based on Ezekiel 36. It's a prayer of illumination. You're going to need it. Uh, I'm going to need it. So let's, let's pray. We always need it. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for choosing us and for the newness of life with you. You can redeem, restore, and rebuild us. Teach us and transform us through your word. Lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Remind us of the purpose we have been given as your children to know you and to make you known. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today's passage is one of the hardest passages, I think, in all of Paul, uh, certainly in Romans, to, to preach on. And um, it's, it's hard to understand it's hard to, to really grasp. It's so dense. It's so complex that it feels 
it really feels more appropriate for a series of lectures in a seminary lecture hall than for a sermon in a church. So those of you who are familiar, pretty familiar with the Bible and with theology, you recognize this is the, one of the most combustible, especially chapter 9, is one of the most combustible passages in the Bible. And for those of you who are um, new to the Bible, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be very challenging to follow uh, this passage. And I'm going to try my best to constantly give context for it. And it's not just for you, it's for the rest of us as well. We need it as well because it's not easy. But there are going to be a point, if you're new to the Bible, where you're going to get lost in some of the details of names and events. If you don't know those names and events, um, you, you, after a while it just becomes a fog. And I'll try to call you back from the fog at various points by drawing out some of the, some of the lessons that we're learning. Now, it reminds me... Uh, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this sermon, uh, about a scene from season two of The Chosen. The Chosen is an incredible uh, TV series on the life of Jesus, uh, going to be a seven-season thing by the time it's done, Lord willing. And uh, in, in season two, and like the second episode, one of the disciples breaks into a recitation of an Old Testament passage. He just starts quoting it. And all the other disciples, one by one, start joining in until they're all quoting it together. And they're all looking at each other and smiling because they learned it in synagogue school as children. And they're like smiling because they still remember it. But there's three people in this scene who are left out. Matthew, the tax collector, who, uh, as they're building the character, uh, left synagogue school very early on to study math. Uh, you've got... Mary Magdalene, uh, and then you've got uh, another, another character. And, and so they're kind of standing there just watching this recitation, and, um, and you find out later what they're thinking because the uh, Mary Magdalene character, the next morning turns to the other woman who was standing there, her name is Rama, and says, wasn't it thrilling when they were just from memory reciting that story? And the other one goes, uh, no, it was intimidating. <laughs> and uh, Mary Magdalene is undeterred. She just says, no, no, we've got like, a lot of catching up to do. And so it becomes a bond between Mary Magdalene and um, this Rhema character and Matthew to get caught up, to figure out the story of God, to get to know the Bible story. Because they're following Jesus, the whole story points to him, but they really... They're following him because of who he is and what they've seen, what they've heard, not because they know that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Um, while we were watching, I turned to my wife Lois and uh, arrogantly said, they need to take the story of God. Uh, <laughs> so in, in case you're new with us, uh, our story of God course, the six-week course that gets people caught up in six weeks. That's what it does. It gets people caught up in six weeks. And for the experience... Bible uh, person, it gives them a framework uh, that will help them read the Bible better for the rest of their lives. Because a lot of times we, you know, we may have been reading the Bible all our lives, but we don't always pick up the best habits for reading. So don't be intimidated. If you're new to the Bible, do not be intimidated by today's sermon or the other two sermons in this three-week series. Be inspired. <laughs> be inspired to catch up. All right? The tools are there to get caught up. You can get caught up. And, um, 
and I hope it'll challenge you in that way. So this week, I spent the week sick. I mean, I had fever. I had, uh, for like three days, I, I hardly went anywhere all week. I pretty much hunkered down from Wednesday uh, through yesterday. Um, I took several home tests, make sure I didn't have COVID. All said no, three of them at three different times. And then I took an official one yesterday, and it said no. I was sitting in the parking lot at 4.30, waiting for the results. <laughs> and uh, like, can I go in or can I not? So can I give this thing in person? And I, uh, I got results when I came in, the video had already started. I shot the video earlier of my sermon. So uh, I, I maybe could have jumped in and interrupted it, but I really wasn't ready to do that mentally. So uh, last night it was on video, today you're getting it live. Uh, by the way, video, way shorter, always shorter than, than live. So. <laughs> You may be wishing I was uh, on video. <laughs> so um, here's the thing. Being sick and quarantined all week, I, I did panic towards the, you know, when, when I first got the fever, I'm like, I really don't know what this passage means yet. <laughs> I'm really struggling with it, and much less how I'm going to preach it. And I really started getting um, a, a little nervous. But then there's something about fever sometimes that, that puts you in a state of unreality, and I'm like, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm enjoying this, and I did. I actually enjoyed my fever. It was a time of meditation. It really was. I just kept, uh, Lois, like, didn't want to be anywhere near me, so I was alone for three days, and it was, and I was studying and studying and studying when, when the medications would kick in, and I was, and when they weren't kicking in, I was thinking about this passage, and I, I, I actually enjoyed the time, and I think I had good results. On the other hand, I've been feverish all week, so maybe it's not, you know, who, who knows for me to, to see. So I want to step back for a moment, just for one moment, and, and remind everybody, because we've, we've done so far two series on Romans, interrupted by other series. And so we did Romans 1 through 5, and then we did Romans 6 through 8. Now we're coming back to Romans. I just want to, like a two-sentence review. Romans is about the gospel of God. That's the main theme. The gospel, this is the one that's hard for us to get, the gospel is the whole story of God. And I've tried to show the implications of why that is so important to understand. I don't know if I've succeeded or not. But it's the whole story of God from creation to new creation. The main character of the gospel is Jesus. And the most important message in the gospel is our salvation. We take the gospel and we take the story of salvation, our salvation, and we make it all about our story of salvation. It's super important. It's a good mistake to make if you're going to make a mistake, all right? But the gospel is the whole story. And Paul makes this point over and over again. It's the whole story story of God. All right, so that's the review. All three chapters in this series, Romans 9, 10, and 11, address a nagging problem for Paul. It's not going to be your nagging problem, uh, but it's a nagging problem for Paul. It's a nagging problem for many of the people that are in the church in Rome uh, because Paul is Jewish, and many of the people were Jewish as well who believed Jesus said he was the Messiah. And so, um, anybody who's familiar and lived 
and embodied the story of the Old Testament, the prob- there's a problem that calls into question the integrity of the gospel, the credibility of the gospel. And that's why we're calling this series Gospel Integrity. Now, here's the problem in a nutshell. I'll put it up here. God made many promises to Israel, to his people, promises to bless her and care for her. He promised a grand future for her. But when Jesus, their Savior, Messiah King, shows up, he's delivered to her, most of Israel rejects him. They reject him. Most Israelites are not going to experience the promises, the blessings that have been promised to them. So the nagging question is this, did his promises fail? Did his promises fail? Now, there are whole theologies out there that try to answer this question in various different ways, and they create schools and different perspectives within Christianity. Um, Paul doesn't belong to any of those schools, all right? So you really have to go back and kind of Rid yourself of that for a little bit and just read what Paul says in this situation. And we're going to try to do that. So the question is, has God failed to keep his word? Has God failed to keep his word to Israel is the big question of these chapters. So what does it have to do with us? Here's what it has to do with us. If God's word failed for Israel, you can finish it. It could fail for us too, right? God's promises to Israel didn't pan out, then God's promises to us won't, might not pan out as well. Paul answers the nagging question about Israel with a resounding no. (laughs) Says that that God's word failed? No. God did not fail to keep his word. And he makes his case by recalling, just going back to the Old Testament. And he recalls all these passages. He goes back to all these passages. He's trying to rebuild their understanding of God's promises. That's what he's doing. He's rebuilding their understanding of God's promises throughout the whole Bible story. And it's hard to follow because it is so dense and because he says such a wide variety and array of stories from the Bible from way back in Genesis all the way to the last book of the Old Testament. And he just draws it with no explanation. On top of all that, it's not an argument that we're used to. It's not linear. It's not, well, God's promises not fail because point one, point two, point three, point four, and point five. All right, drop the mic. It's not like that at all. Uh, that's not uh, how most of the time the Bible deals with things. Things. It's a different culture. So it's not purely linear. What it's more like is like this. Well, it. God's word didn't fail because of, here, point one, and point two. Oh, by the way, that brings up a tangent. Let me go down this tangent. And, oh, let's go back to point one and point two. Now, I'm going to point it, throw in a little bit of a couple more points, points three and four. Oh, that brings up another tangent. Let's go down that, that rabbit trail and then go back to three and then jump to five. <laughs> All right. That's what it feels like, and that's what it is like. And so Paul does have what what I discerned were five points. That's just my my way of trying to give a framework to it. And he comes in and out of those points at various times. So they 
these five points I'm going to give them to you, they provide a framework for understanding this passage. For those of you who've struggled with this passage, I think it'll be helpful for you. But remember, I came up with this while I had a fever. So as you read these chapters, you can always basically look and say, what is Paul taught? Which point is Paul developing here? And, and kind of go back. And if it doesn't fit one of the five, you can go, oh, it, he's on one of his tangents. And it'll be clear that he's on one of his, one of his tangents. Now, um, here are the five non-linear points. It's in your outlines as well. But basically, God's promises were never intended for every descendant of Abraham. Not from the beginning. It was not intended for every descendant. It's like he made promises to Israel. It never did mean all of ethnic Israel. God has always chosen some and excluded others from among Abraham's descendants. He's going to show that over and over again. He's always like, well, here's a child of Abraham. Promise wasn't for him. All right. Um, a tangent then. Is God's approach fundamentally unfair? This is where some of the most theologically combustible material is found on this tangent. And we're just going to scratch it today and cover it again. The distinguishing mark for God's people has always been faith, not ethnicity or performance. Paul makes that case. If you remember Romans, Romans chapter 4, it's always, it's always from the beginning. It's always been about faith. It was the faith of Abraham. Okay? And the people that are going to be God's people are always going to be people who put their faith in Abraham, not just, hey, I was born you know, in Abraham's line. That's not, that's not enough. And then the goal has always been to bless the nations through faithful Israel. That's been the goal. It's, it's there in Genesis chapter 12. And then I think another tangent, which is a stern warning to Gentile Christians. Now, interestingly, two of the major schools, uh, you know, for centuries now in Christianity on some questions about God's election, predestination, all that sort of things, the first school loves the first tangent. It's like the go-to passage. One of the go-to passages. The second school loves this tangent. <laughs> it seems to contradict the first one. All right, so, uh, and, and the Bible, you know, it, it, people make choice. I'm, I'm going to go this school, I'm going to go this school, and uh, I just have to explain away this one, or I have to explain away this one because it's hard to kind of put it together in our own logic. Okay, and then the, the last part is this. Perhaps God will use the response of the nations to eventually win back the rest of Abraham's descendants. All right, there's some mystery in what Paul says. That's why I put perhaps. Uh, there's some mystery there. So, again, this is not linear. Paul is going to weave in and out of these arguments as you read along. So we're going to dip our toes into his, answers today, into his answer today, but we're going to spend... A, the only reason we're going to spend a little bit of time in his answer today is because we've got to spend some time in how he introduces the problem and then how he concludes it. So Romans 9 through 11 is clearly a clear section that grows out of everything before it, but it begins something new. The, the, all the scholars of Romans say one through five, definitely, and then start something new in chapter six. Chapter nine, nobody argues with, started something new. It's like he put down his pen Spent a few days praying, discussing with his fellow uh, ministry uh, associates, 
uh, okay, we're going to go into something really tough, picked up the pen again, and he didn't pick up the pen, but somebody else picked up the pen, and draft after draft after draft until we finally get this, and it feels like this really abrupt change. So um, he starts, how he starts, I think there's a screen if it wasn't up already, how he starts and ends may be as important for us to hear as his arguments in between. So Paul begins this whole section with an emotionally strong lament. This is not, I mean, theologians, like again, I, this is like huge in theology, this chapter. Theologians have put so much logical power and thinking to this, but for Paul, this is not an abstract problem. His heart is broken. And, and part of what makes this passage that we're about to hear and follow along, hopefully if your Bible's open, chapter 9, follows on the heels of one of the highest notes in the Bible. So you go from one of the highest, highest notes in the Bible to a lament, grieving. And so chapter 8 ended, ends, like the high of an Olympic athlete crossing the finish line and winning gold after a lifetime of struggle and training and overcoming insurmountable obstacles. It's just, it's soaring. It's euphoric. It's called the greatest chapter ever written because it's so euphoric. So it goes from the euphoria to what we're about to read. So I want you to follow along in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, as one of five, five okers reads the passage. Romans 9, 1 through 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. All right. What happened from chapter 8 to chapter 9? It's like the Olympic athlete has gone from the euphoria of winning the race to the reality of receiving the medal, all alone. Imagine that she's winning, she's receiving her medal, and she thinks back to her mom, who's no longer alive, and sacrificed so much to help her come to that moment. Her first coach, who inspired her more than any other coach, is not around to experience that moment with her. Paul's heart is broken, and he laments the fact that so many of his own people, Israel, the Jewish people, have rejected Jesus. So he has this euphoria of experiencing the unconditional love of God. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, Romans 8. But he goes from that to the fact that his teachers that he grew up with, his parents, his brothers and sisters, his childhood friends, they're not there to celebrate it with him. 
In fact, some have opposed him and some have even tried to kill him repeatedly. This isn't an intellectual problem for, uh, simply an intellectual problem for Paul. It's highly personal. And I want you to see where he lands before we look at the answer to the problem. So turn to Romans 11, and then you'll come back to chapter 9. But turn to Romans 11, beginning in verse 33, and you'll see if you have the NIV, for example, um, I don't know what the ESV, some others have, but it has a heading, a heading to this section called doxology. Doxology is a formal element of worship. It's a, it's a, it's a praise hymn or a praise song or a praise psalm, that kind of thing. And you'll notice it's in verse form. This is how he concludes everything that he says here. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him, and through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. <laughs> That's how he concludes this, this theologically dense three chapters. As you're going to see... Beginning in 9.6 all the way through 11.32, everything from the introduction all the way to the conclusion, Paul does his best to trace the paths of God. That's what he's trying to do. He's, what he said there can't be done. He's trying to do that. He is searching his judgments. But in the end, he says this, his judgments are unsearchable. His paths are beyond tracing out. Does that mean everything you wrote is, you know, garbage? No. He's taking his best shot, trying to trace God's path and explain God's wisdom and knowledge. But most, most of what we would like to know remains a mystery. It just remains a mystery. And this is one of the most important things I learned in my feverish state of meditation this week. Basically, that everything between the lament and the doxology is vitally important, but it's not a comprehensive answer to the problems Paul tries to tackle. There's still mystery. There are important unanswered questions. And what Paul writes is not the last word from God. It is a word from God, but it's not the last word from God. Now, I think most of you who have studied this before, you came to that conclusion. <laughs> um, there's just... Some people that think they have it figured out, and they would do well to pay attention to how Paul begins and how Paul ends this. So let's dip our feet into Paul's answer to the problem. This is where it starts getting uh, a little bit hard to follow. So his answer to the problem begins, remember, he says, no, God's promises have not failed, um, and he gives two passages of Scripture as examples. He begins with two passages of Scripture. And if you look at your outline, these two passages and what he says here fit into the first two points. That's where he got the first two points. One, God's promises were never intended for all the descendants of Abraham. That's one of his points. And his other one is God has always chosen. God has always made choices along the way. And like it or not, when you make a choice, when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another. So God is making choices, which means he's including some and by just, like, reality, 
others are being excluded. So the first story goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, if you're new to the Bible, is the first Jewish person. God calls him in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And um, so God promises to make a great nation out of him, but not just to make a great nation out of him. He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you so that you'll bless the entire world. So I'm going to bless the whole world through you. But Abraham is old, and his wife is old, and she's way past, past childbearing years. They've been unable to have a child. So why, Sarah, his wife, comes up with a plan. Why don't you sleep with my handmaid, maiden, um, Hagar, and that child will be the child, the promise. And so he does. And Ishmael is born. And God says, no, that's not my plan. My plan is the child of promise is going to come through Sarah. I told you that. And, um, and so Sarah does eventually bear a son. They name him Isaac. That's the background to the story. So look at verse 6. Of chapter 9. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, there's that point, nor because they are his descendants, not, nor because they are his descendants, why, what am I having trouble here? They are his descendants, are they all, oh, just because they're descendants of his doesn't mean they're all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's, that's a quote from the Old Testament. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Okay, so yeah, he made a promise to Abraham, but then there is a specific line that he's going to use. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son, not Hagar. Sarah will have a son. That's another quotation from the Old Testament. Ishmael becomes the father, the son of Hagar, becomes the father of a, of a great nation. And he's, but he's not a recipient of the promises. God makes, him, makes other promises to Ishmael. What I'd forgotten until this week was that Abraham had other sons. It's mentioned in Genesis 25. He'd had another wife. Possibly when Sarah was alive. It's hard to tell uh, by the way that it's stated. But he had several sons, and they were not part of the promise. And it even says in the text that Abraham sent them away to the east. He didn't want them to get in the way of what was supposed to happen through Isaac. So you have these two things at play here. Paul is showing us from the very beginning clearly that God's intention was not for all descendants of Abraham, when he made the promises. And this other point is at work, already at work here, which is God is making sovereign choices along the way. That's more by implication. God is making sovereign choices along the way. He includes some, and some others are not included in this. Now, the next story is similar, but the emphasis falls on God's sovereign choice in a really, really strong way. It involves now Isaac, the child of promise, his two sons, who are twins, and Paul is going to say, remember, before the twins were born, God said the, young, the older is going to serve the younger, which is just absolutely backwards in that world. The older 
is going to serve the younger. Before they were born, God's choice wasn't based on their character. God's choice wasn't like he looked ahead and said, well, you know, this, the younger is just going to be a better person. <laughs> or the younger is going to do better for me. It has nothing to do with performance. It's just God's will and his choice to make. By the way, as you read the Bible, the younger, he's a scoundrel. He's a terrible person. <laughs> All right? And there's no other way to read it except that he's a terrible person. And the first one, you wouldn't even call him a terrible person. You'd just say, oh, my goodness, he's willing to give up everything for a bowl of soup. Driven by his stomach. But J Jacob, the younger, just you, like a terrible person in so many ways. So it's not a performance. It's not on character. And Paul comes, goes out of his way to make that point. So look at verses 10 through 12. All right, that's the background. Hopefully it'll help. Not all that, uh, not only that, but Rebecca, still trying to answer this question. No, it's not failed. Not only that, but Rebecca's children, this is Isaac's wife, conceived at the same time, um, were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, in order for what? God's purposes, his choice, election, his choices would stand. Not by works, but by who calls. In other words, not by looking ahead and going, well, I know which one's going to be the better one, so I'm going to choose him. It's not, not by works. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, the language is strong. Um, don't be shocked by it. It's covenant language. Uh, it's a quote from the last book of the Bible. Uh, Esau's descendants became the Edomites. They fight Jacob's descendants all the time. Uh, they're eventually judged, wiped out, and, and it's reflecting back, okay? And, and it's talking about, that's covenant language, love, hate. Jesus used the same thing one time. He says, you know, your family's going to oppose you, he said. When that happens, um, these are actually from two different places, but basically what he's saying, when that happens, love God, hate your family. All right, it's making a choice. It's who, am I, who is part of this? Who, who am I going to put my heart into? What am I going to, what, what is going to run my life? Who is going to be my God? That's, that's the kind of thing that's going, going on here. All right. So you got a couple of quotations from Genesis 25 uh, again, or a couple of quotations, uh, or one from Genesis 25, one from Malachi, who wrote several hundred years later. Um, so Paul's point so far is that God's word hasn't failed because not all the descendants received the promise in the first place. And God is sovereignly orchestrating his plan. Okay. Paul, I'm lamenting my brothers and sisters. God's people, the Israelites, have not in large numbers received Christ. He, remember, he's Jewish, okay? He's a Pharisee. They have not received Christ. Does that mean God's word has failed? No, because it never meant all, he, God never meant for all the Israelites to have received the promise. And number two, God makes choices all along the way, as you can see in his story. He's making, he has a sovereignly, Sovereign plan, he's orchestrating, sovereignly orchestrating that plan. But this takes us down a rabbit trail of sorts. And this will be the last part of the detail that we'll, we'll look at. I don't know my watch today. Okay, we're doing fine. 
He anticipates an objection, and he answers it before moving on. So look at verse 14. He's given these examples. What shall we say then? Here's, here's the tangent. Is God unjust? He's making choices along the way, right? Is, is he unjust? He says, not at all. Not at all. So he gives us his conclusion, and now he's going to give us his evidence for that before he returns to the original argument. Okay, so this is a tangent because it's no longer answering the question, did God's promises fail? No, because this and this, well, that doesn't seem fair to me. <laughs> All right, so is God unfair, unjust? No. So that's what he's going to be talking about now. now. Um, the first passage that he uses to answer that question is just this fantastic story. And it's covered in a whole chapter from Exodus. And I am not going to go into detail on that. I'm going to save time by saying, look at question five and spend some time thinking about question five in your sermon application guide. Um, but we'll read it really quickly, and then we're going to uh, plant ourselves in the, second, in the second part of the answer. What shall we say then, verse 14? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have, will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And we don't like that kind of answer. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, is he unfair? No, because he's not. <laughs> kind of like that. But you read the story, and it brings so much more nuance to that, okay? Here's the second part of it. It, is not therefore, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That's such an important line. And there's so much packed in it that we can't unpack. I'll, I'll try. Uh, just like in 30 seconds of talk, I'll try. But it depends on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, whoo, now we're going to another story. <laughs> this is, you see what I mean? It's like, whoa, it's all over the place. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, the thing that throws us off here, and this is why this passage is so controversial and difficult and even hard to stomach sometimes, is because where does the hardening thing come from? Why Pharaoh? Pharaoh didn't experience God's mercy. You know, so I give mercy to whom I want to have mercy. And look at Pharaoh. I give mercy to who I want to have mercy. And I harden hearts. I harden hearts. That's the answer to God not being fair. <laughs> um, nowhere here has he mentioned anything about hardening. But he introduces it in this roundabout way. Here's, here's the thing. I, I can't emphasize this enough. Paul literally expects us to know the story. He expects us to stop and go, That's what he's actually going. I mean, this is not coming back and trying to explain Paul like, oh, he's impossible to understand, so let's just say, oh, you know. This is how Jewish teachers taught. They give you a part of something, and they expected you to think and go, oh, I get it. 
All right, so I'm going to try to give you the <gasps> here in just a few moments, all right? So if you go back and you read the story about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it's the, it's the whole story of the, of the plagues. And interestingly, the story of the plagues is a constant commentary on Pharaoh's heart. You know, it's from, if you really go back and read it, you, you know that anybody who read the story had to spend, the Jewish people had to spend, like, tons of years, decades, always coming back to this and going, why in the world? Pharaoh's heart. Every time we're getting a commentary on Pharaoh's heart. What does God want us to learn from this? Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart. So this is something that anybody in Paul's day who had studied the Bible would have considered. Pharaoh's heart. That's why he doesn't have to go into all the details. So uh, I've included in your outlines a wonderful article by Tim Mackey who did the Bible Project, and you want to get more detail, go and see that later. Uh, but here's, here's the thing. So here's the commentary on Pharaoh's heart. You have the first plague of blood, and it says, Pharaoh's heart became hard. That is purposely ambiguous, the grammar is. Became hard. It mean, could mean that someone hardened his heart. It could mean that he hardened his own heart. The frogs, the second. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let's be clear. <laughs> All right. The gnats, the third plague. Pharaoh's heart was hard, ambiguous. The flies. Pharaoh's hardened his own heart. <laughs> Not ambiguous. Number five, the livestock die. Pharaoh's heart was hard, ambiguous. Okay, now here's, here's what you've got. Three times it's ambiguous. Twice it's unambiguously Pharaoh who hardens his own heart. Tim Mackey argues in that article that there's good reason to believe that the ambiguous ones, that that should interpret the other ones. All right. Okay, so um, the tables begin to turn after the fifth plague. With the sixth plague of boils, it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's the first time it says that. And then it kind of jukes us a little bit because the hail comes and it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. <laughs> God didn't harden it. But everything changes after that. You have the locust. God announces that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart and he does it twice. It's, it's like, mm, don't miss it. All right. I'm going to say it again. I hardened his heart. Darkness. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The death of the firstborn, the tenth plague, where the whole Passover comes from. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He expects his readers to know this. It's so, I mean, it's so obvious. You, if you've read the story, you, you've noticed it. You've read the, about the hardening. Like, who, who, what, what's going on here? But we don't typically, in our day and age, like do what the Jewish people did, which was like, mm, mm, think about it, you know, for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes after reading Tim Mackey's article, I, I felt like Mary Magdalene in The Chosen. Like, I have a lot of catching up to do. I really do. Here's the other really important thing I learned in my feverish meditations this week. What Paul doesn't tell us in Romans 9 through 11 is sometimes as important to the story as what he tells us. Paul expects us to fill in the story with what we know from his word. Again, this is a typical way of teaching. 
when we get to the clay passage that everybody hates, there's so much he doesn't tell us. We'll, we'll look at that um, on another, in week two. So what's Paul's answer to the tangential question? What then shall we say? Is God unjust? No. He is perfectly just, Paul says. His answer is, God gives us what we want, and what we want is independence from him. There's nothing unjust about that. God isn't the author of our evil. And that sheds light on what he says about mercy in verses 15 through 16, which I'm going to let you connect the dots. But I just want to say this one thing, to leave you with this. The Bible drives home again and again that we should never be surprised by God's judgment. God is a just God, which should surprise us, given the part that we play in the story, is that our just God has compassion and mercy towards us. I, I've had this discussion with friends, with, with others. I remember uh, one in particular, a pastor friend of mine, and I just looked at him and I said, because he just, it, this bothers him, so, bothered him so much, I just said, I don't think, <laughs> I really don't think you can understand the Bible, you can understand the gospel, you can understand the whole story. You really can't until you come to this conclusion, that the surprise, the, where the moment comes where you go, oh, the surprise is not God's judgment. We struggle with God's judgment. The surprise is his mercy. And, um, and there's, I mean, there's all kinds of people that today in Christianity are trying to do away with God's judgment. And when you do away with God's judgment, you will eventually do away with the gospel. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Hope I'm wrong, but I'm absolutely convinced of that. We're going to... Um, We're going to stop there for today, and we're going to pick up in the next sermon, which is actually in two weeks, and we'll continue to see the evidence that Paul provides to prove that his promises to Israel have not failed, and we're going to explore one of his other tangents uh, that has fueled so many theological firestorms that went about the clay, uh, but for now, I want you just to be sure of this. I want to kind of leave you with this. God's word, his promises, didn't fail for Israel, and they won't fail for us. That's the message. The gospel has integrity. So let's begin our response to God as we do every week. We have four movements in our worship. We prepare, we listen, we respond, and we send. So we begin our response here. We send to continue our response. Let's begin our response to God by celebrating and remembering what he's done for us, the mercy and compassion that he demonstrated for us on the cross, how it is that God, who is perfect in justice, no, he is just God. He is not unfair. He is just. He's perfect in justice. How it is that he brought justice by taking the penalty for our sin on himself, not by ignoring our injustices, but becoming sin, Jesus became sin for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. I want to close in prayer. 
with um, the words of Paul's doxology. So let's um, close the sermon. Let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We're going to sing in response. We're going to pray in response. We have a kneeling bench back there. Uh, if you'd like to use that, we have another option up here for praying while lighting a candle. The whole idea behind that is that as you're praying and lighting that candle, you're praying for someone in your life, like there were people in Paul's life. You're praying for people in your life who do not have the light of Christ shining in their life, and you're praying for that. The Bible calls us to pray for, for those who don't have Christ. And so... Um, Let's continue our worship by responding.